Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, where it's my job to introduce you to people from the world of commercial property. We're talking with investors and thought leaders about their experiences of the commercial property world and sharing our own lessons from the last 20 years to give you practical know-how so that you can follow in their footsteps. If you've ever thought commercial could be your next step, but it just seems too confusing and opaque, then you've come to the right place. There are so many exciting opportunities in this dynamic sector, and I'm looking forward to pulling back the curtain and sharing them with you. Hello and welcome back to the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, where we aim to help you move from residential into commercial property investment. And I'm your host, Jerry Alexander. This week, we're going to be talking all things finance. And we're really privileged to have Michael Primrose on the show this week, the property finance guy who has helped raise over £75 million worth of commercial finance and doubled his staff during COVID. Welcome, Michael. Thanks very much for having me, Jerry. Pleasure. Looking forward to this conversation. I know there's lots of questions out there about how commercial finance works and the different stages of commercial finance, because, of course, it's not just a one-off thing, is it? You can have different elements of your development that will take different types of finance. Um, I would like to ask you first, though, if you could maybe just introduce us a little bit to your background, where you're based and what markets you deal with. Yeah, okay. So my name is Michael Brimus, as you already said. Uh, I set up the Property Finance Guy in November 2018, um, having been sort of a commercial broker working for somebody else uh, for a couple of years prior to that. Uh, Before that, I was a uh, conveyancer, mainly focusing in in residential, actually, to begin with, uh, before moving and dabbling in commercial conveyancing as well. Um, Fell out of love with conveyancing pretty quickly. Um, and, and then that's how I then got into commercial finance. Um, so yeah, set up the property finance guy, November, 2018, uh, in March, 2020, having taken on, I think at that point, four female members of staff, uh, I was very quickly alerted to the fact that having, uh, I think at that point, 70% of my workforce was female, uh, under the umbrella of the property finance guy probably wasn't ideal. Um, so was very, was very quickly advised <laughs> to have a rebrand. Um, so yeah, we rebranded to the Property Finance Collective. Uh, as of March 2020, I kept the Property Finance Guy as my sort of personal brand, if you like. Um, and yeah, so sort of just went from strength to strength, really. So there's, there's I think, eight of us now. We're about, well, we turned two years old, realistically, in November 2018, by which point, uh, sorry, in November 2020, uh, by which point I hope there'll be about 10 of us. Um, so we've grown, grown fairly well. Um, and we uh, actually our biggest period of growth weirdly came during COVID. Um, so sort of while everyone else was laying staff off or um, sort of getting rid of people, we were just growing from strength to strength. Um, so yeah, that's sort of a whistle-stop tour of, of where we were and, and sort of where we are now. Um, we're based in Lincolnshire. Um, so we're sort of that weird middle bit between the north and the south. Nobody really quite knows uh, which one we fit into. Um, so, yeah, we're based in Lincolnshire. We work nationwide. Um, so we, we cover financing in England, Scotland and Wales. Um, and, yeah, that's that's probably about it. Into, oh, I suppose actually in terms of markets, 
Um, we cover bridging development and commercial mortgages for uh, residential properties, semi-commercial or fully commercial assets. Um, and yeah, that's that's probably about it. Brilliant. Okay, thanks for that. And typically our, I think, typically our audience are looking at developing commercial for cash flow long term. Yeah. But some of them are looking at commercial conversions. Um, and interestingly, I've got a, a really good friend that I'm going to be doing on the uh, podcast with who's actually doing a resi to commercial development, which I think is against the trends at the moment. Yes, slightly, but, yeah. But, but your, 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 um, I guess your customer base is quite varied because obviously there are people buying commercial, but they're, they're converting to resi, particularly down in England. And there are some that are doing specifically just residential development. But I guess if we think about the audience generally for this, we're looking more at the commercial element. And how how are you finding the market right now? You talked about how you went through COVID and how staff numbers have doubled. And I know from talking to you previously that, that inquiry levels are mental, I think is the word you used. Uh, yeah, that, that's <laughs> what, what, probably an understatement. How, how is actually the loan side going as well, Michael? I mean, uh, how's the ability to borrow money right now? So for us, I suppose the the biggest is so we, we're recording this in what are we end of August. Uh, so we're we're just coming out of, or it feels like we're just coming out of the main bulk of COVID. Um, so in terms of sort of the lending as it is right now, and I mean it, it changes week on week at the minute. It feels, um, but actually the last few weeks it it's felt really good, um, and actually the difference that we've noticed now compared to pre-COVID, for example, is that actually a lot of deals that we're... So but both inquiries that we're getting in are more serious. They're, they're there to be done. They're de- deals to be done. Um, but actually, the lenders feel like they're a bit more bought in as well. Um, Good. And the thing is as well, I suppose for every, everyone sort of looks at the, the top level and they sort of see lenders and during COVID, obviously, lenders were pulling back, they were pulling out, they were stopping lending and all sorts of other things. Um, but people never really took the time to dig into, into why that was. Um, and a lot of it was purely down to the mortgage holidays, um, having to take extensions on loans and things like that. And, and that admin takes up a huge amount of time. So it wasn't necessarily that banks didn't have the appetite to lend anymore. It was that they didn't have the capacity um, I think I read somewhere that Barclays took something stupid like sixty thousand calls. Um, it was it was either within a couple of days or within a week. But anyway, they, they just physically could not cope with it. Um, and the thing is, when you're talking about extensions, mortgage holidays, that sort of thing, it's not something that your sort of average Joe on on the other end of the line can do. It has to go through to to an underwriter. It has to be done properly. Um, so the thing is, is it was like it's taking up all of the underwriters' time. All the BDMs are trying to sort of keep their brokers at bay, and it just takes up a huge amount of time. So the the actual appetite to lend didn't disappear; it was just the capacity, um, and all of the products sort of dropping off. Um, whereas now, I mean, there's in terms of the lenders we deal with, they're all sort of normally fairly private backed. Um, so it's normally a, a consortium of private investors that have come together and said, "Yeah, let's lend out some money." Um, or it might be a family office that decided to lend out some money. All these guys want to get their money out. They want to get it working for them, especially now, um, because they've had months of no income off that money. It's time to start getting it working again. Um, so in terms of th- they want to get that money back out the door. Um, and I think it would be interesting to see what happens 
sort of moving into next year when a lot of these funding lines come up for renewal. Because um, I think we'll see a big shift in power. I think we'll see some of the challenger banks struggle because their funding lines either that they'll want to renegotiate better terms for themselves or they might want to be more restrictive. Whereas the sort of privately backed family office backed lenders are probably going to become more competitive um, as they take that, that bigger market share. Um, and I think it'll be a while before the high street banks get back to where they're supposed to be. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, a long answer to a short question, I suppose, but yeah, in terms of the, the lending appetite, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's really quite strong at the minute, um, and it, it's it's getting back to that competitive race to the bottom again of everyone starting to drop their rates, increase their loan to values. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really good time at the minute. It feels like to to start trying to borrow some cash. That's that's great, and that will be really encouraging for some of our listeners. And I think, you know, we we do have uh, a various people with various different backgrounds that, that listen to the podcast and some have done quite an extensive amount of residential development already and will be quite au fait with bridging and development finance and of course then the more traditional mortgage market but uh, would it be fair to say one of your specialism really is helping that that journey when somebody takes on a property that perhaps the high street banks are not quite so keen on helping bridge or develop there's an issue that's coming up and that's really your expertise is to help work through that stage where, where a lot of our listeners might be looking at commercial property thinking, well, I need to get a mortgage on this. But actually, that's the third stage, isn't it, really? There's other things in before that. Yeah, so I'd, I'd say our specialism sits bang slap in the middle of creative financing. Um, and I'm talking about creative, not illegal. Um, yeah. So it's, it's sort of that... Um, we don't deal with the high street banks because at the end of the day, you don't really need a broker to go to a high street bank. You can, you've can, you got uh, normally account managers there that are, are more than capable of helping you. Um, so yeah, we're, we're there to help people who are either just getting started, maybe haven't got that relationship with the banks yet. Um, maybe some of the older generation developers who have uh, been dealing with the same bank for 20, 30 years and all of a sudden they've had their funding pulled and they've got no idea where to go. Um, or they've been dealing with the same bank for 20 to 30 years and hadn't realised that there were other sort of higher leverage, better interest products out there. Um, very much like when you purchase content insurance or something like that, you sort of tend to leave it with the same person for 20, 30 years and you never really sort of think to, to check it and make sure you've got the best deal. Um, and a lot of the older generation developer tend to get caught in that cycle. Um, so we, we try and help with the education of that. There are hundreds of different options out there. Um, and yeah, I'd say we, we're there probably as a consultant, really, just to sort of say, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Um, and it helps sort of, from my perspective, I'm ex-conveyancer, I'm an ex-estate agent. Um, we've got our own development company. We've got our own acquisition company. Um, so we're, we're sort of, buying up, I mean, predominantly residential, um, but we're in the process at the minute of buying a big block of flats with commercial underneath. Um, and it, it's things like that. You sort of, from a broker's perspective, you see things differently to a to a normal broker. They maybe would look at a deal and almost have tunnel vision of, well, that that's what's going to happen. That's all you can do with it. Whereas, yeah, I like to think we can 
sort of take it off on a couple of different routes. Um, but in terms of, yeah, like you were saying, it, it, there's normally a, sort of two, maybe three stages uh, to any of these processes. And that's normally the first stage is some sort of acquisition finance. Um, so some sort of bridging loan or uh, maybe a term facility or, or something like that to, to allow you to acquire the property. Uh, the second stage is normally the development or refurb or conversion of that property. Uh, and then the third is your exit finance. Um, so normally onto a term facility, once the refurb conversion or whatever it is that you're trying to achieve with that property has been completed. Um, so, so Mike, can, can we, have you got an example that we can dive into? Something just so the listeners can have a think through maybe project that, that you've done that on? Yeah, so kind of that journey. probably one of the most recent ones. Uh, so we had a, a couple of property investors, developers, whatever you want to call them, um, that bought a large block of service offices. Um, so they'd purchased this large block of service offices uh, on a bridge. And it was, I think, in the end, we ended up using a, a bridging company in, uh, I want to say Jersey. Anyway, it was a, a privately backed uh, sort of family-run bridging company. Uh, and the reason being that we sort of had to go off on a, on a bit of a tangent and use a rather... Uh, different source of funding was because the property had an EPC rating of a G, um, which sort of following all of the new rules that had come in yeah. uh, around EPCs made it unmortgageable. Um, so we'd, we'd initially actually gone to a mortgage lender and said, look, can you mortgage this? Um, it, it's a block of serviced offices. It's, it's ready to go. It needs a bit of a tart up, but that can sort of be done while it's being rented. Um, but they took one look at it and said, no, we just, just can't on that EPC. Um, so we took it to a couple of others and sort of almost made our way down the list, if you like, of, of sort of term lenders. Yeah. Um, and it, it just getting the same response everywhere. Even the, the the most creative of them just, just couldn't get comfortable with it. Um, so that's when we had to then go down the bridging route. Well, again, bridging lenders were a bit iffy about it as well. So you sort of, again, you start at the top of the list, you start to make your way down. Um, and we ended up sort of going to a family office um, and I think they did it at it's about 0.8%, I think they did it at, at the end. So it was a really competitive rate. Um, and I think we got 70% loan to value on that one as well. So again, for a commercial with a pretty yeah. horrendous EPC, it was it was quite yeah. a good LTV as well. Um, and the plan was is that they would acquire it, refurb it, get the EPC sorted, um, and then at that point would then refinance onto term finance. So with that one, there was only two stages because Actually, they didn't need development finance because the works in order to get that EPC up were, I think, about 30 grand. Um, and they made the decision that they were just going to cover that themselves rather than going for development finance. Um, so they, I think, they put in an air purification system and air conditioning and um, I think replaced a couple of the windows and all sorts of other things. And anyway, it got the EPC rating up. Um, and actually, one of the conditions of the bridging loan was that they had to get the EPC rating up to a mortgageable standard within three months of the loan. Um, so the bridging company actually put a condition in there to say, look, you need to get it up to this standard by this point. Um, and the reason for that was not them trying to be bullies or anything like that. It was just if there needed to be a repossession or anything like that, they wanted to be safe in the knowledge that it was mortgageable. Yeah. So obviously if it had been repossessed in month one or two, then... Obviously, they would have been stuffed anyway. But um, in terms of putting that in there, it just gave them a bit of protection just to just to know that if they did have to take it back, um, that they would be covered. 
that's that's great that because you're giving us some figures there. So we're talking seventy percent loan to value. Yeah. Eight percent. Uh, sorry, 0.8%, so uh, an annualised rate of 9.6, something yeah. like that. Um, I, I assume there were some fees at yeah, so the beginning or exit? 2% 2, 2 arrangement fee, and there was no exit fee on that one. So in terms of okay. the cost of finance, if you don't include valuations or legals or anything like that, then it was about 11.6% uh, over a 12-month period. Great, um, that was the last question. Yeah, duration, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you include... And the reason they did it for 12 was just in case... They couldn't get the EBC yeah. done in time, or if they decided that they, I mean, the, the rental income from the service offices was more than enough to cover uh, the the bridging loan interest payments. Um, so for them, they they knew that they could run it for twelve months. And they knew they needed time to refinance, uh, and also it was a case of it, it gave them time to do a bit of a tartar, like I said earlier, um, which would then increase the valuation. Which then, when they went for term finance, rather than going for term finance when it was still in a bit of a dilapidated state, then doing it up and then having to refinance. They thought, well, why not just do it on the bridge, get it up to the best possible standard that we can, and then we only have to refinance once. Um, and then it's on a mortgage and then run it for five, ten, however many years you want to. Um, and then either look to exit it or or refinance it again onto another fixed rate. Interesting. So the, what was the occupancy like when they took it over in the first place? So when they took it over, I want to say that it was 66%. Um, okay. I remember it was about two-thirds full at that point. Yeah. And when they finished and refinanced? Uh, so it's only just finished, in fairness. Uh, and as far as I'm aware, they're up to about 85 90% as it stands nice. at the minute. Um, and it, it looks good as well, to be fair. It's um, it, it's a good-looking building. Brilliant. I'm, I'm glad you brought brought that case up that's that's exactly the sort of stuff that um we talk about on the show here and stuff that we've looked at it's, it, there's there's already an income there so i'd imagine the bridging company were comfortable there was some income there it yes, helps yeah. borrowing the money doesn't it but there's an upside there's 33 percent occupancy and the ability to add improvements to the building so you can increase rates and, and the other a dream case uh, that's it. And then the, the other thing is because we went for 70% loan to value for the bridge, we'd gone for serviced monthly interest payments rather than having all of the interest retained up front, which would have dropped their loan to value to maybe 55, 60% net. Um, yeah. So it, it meant less of a deposit in as well. And again, that, without that income coming in, they wouldn't have been able to service it. Um, and yeah, therefore would have had to put more money into the deal up front. Yeah. That's that's a great deal. Thanks for sharing that one. Is that kind of your dream? Is there, there, there they tend to sometimes? I mean, that didn't sound too complicated to me, but just sometimes they're a little bit more challenging. Is that you mentioned that you went down the the list of bridging um, people there, yes, and, yeah. and found the right deal in the end. Is that one that was a bit more tricky, or was it just was that really just down to EPC? I'm just, what I'm trying to get to here is how how complex do your deals tend to get? Yeah, I mean, with with our stuff, I mean, we, we're always dealing with the the more complex stuff. Um, I mean, in terms of, of that one, I mean, the, the only reason we really had to go down that list was due to the EPC. Um, I mean, in theory, had, had that EPC been okay, actually it would have just gone straight onto a mortgage. Um, so it was that one little, would I even call it a hurdle? It's just barely anything, really. It's just, it, it was that one little thing that actually then sort of snowballed into, well, actually we can't go to this top half of the list because they need it. 
Um, we can't go to this top half of the list because they need it. Well, okay, we're, we're into the bottom half of the yeah. of the bridging list. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that one was was particularly complex. Um, it was just just a bit of a pain to place, really, because it was Specific. yeah quite amazing how many sort of bridging lenders weren't too keen on the EPC issue. Um, but yeah, I'd say it, just not not massively complex. So now um, have they. Have they replaced that now with com- with a sort of more traditional commercial mortgage or commercial not, loan? Not as of yet, no. So we're going through the process on that, um, and that that will, fingers crossed, uh, come out at seventy percent as well. Um, and mm-hmm. the the annual rate on that again, we're just waiting for confirmation, but that should be about four point six five uh, per okay. annum. And I think that's on is a that, two years. Is that based on over base or is that fixed? Uh, that's over base. So that'll be, okay. uh, I think, all in, I want to say, with the minimum LIBOR rate that most of them charge at the minute, uh, I think that's 5.4% okay. over two okay. years. Interesting. And that's yeah. probably worth touching on, actually, that, that minimum LIBOR rate, in that uh, although the, the base minimum base rate, I think, as we speak at the minute, is 0.01, I want to say, was it 0.1? Yeah. Um, yeah. So what happens with most challenger banks, lenders, uh, is that they'll charge a minimum sort of base of England or, or LIBOR rate, um, and most of them will charge 0.75. Yeah. Um, so even though, so on that deal, for example, that, that should have come out of 4.75, but because they've got their minimum that they charge, it comes out of 5.4. So it makes a, a bit of a difference when you're sort of looking at those. It's interesting. And do you, have you learnt what multiple they may be um, achieving on, on the income? So it varies massively. Um, so we've seen some that are getting 10. Uh, we've seen some that are getting 8. We've seen some that are getting 4. Um, yeah. it, it just varies massively. I mean, we don't know on this one because we've not had the valuation on it yet. Um, but when the valuation takes place, it'd be interesting to see what multiplier uh, does come out on it um, and actually what they they deem it to be at that point. Um, yeah. The issue is, is trying to find comparables um, which is quite difficult because of the area it's in. There's there's not a huge amount of uh, serviced offices or, or blocks like that. Um, so it's quite difficult to find comparables. So from a valuer's perspective, it would be, be interesting to see what comparables they actually pull out on that one because we, we often find if they can't find comparables, you end up... We, we had one in Northampton. Um, so we had a gentleman that was buying a string of shops Um and they all have flats above them. He's buying the entire parade, I think you would you probably call it. Um, and they were using comparables from Leicester, yeah. um, which isn't particularly close at all. Um, I suppose it's the closest similar town. Um, but it was quite interesting to see that they used comparables from a place that was from Northampton, I want to say 45 minutes to an hour away. Um so yeah, it was quite bizarre, um, and I wonder if we'll see something similar on this as well. I do, I do get asked quite a lot from students and and people that talk to me about commercial. You know how how do you get valuation or or work out a multiples, particularly on multi let buildings, if you're looking on a license model rather than a lease? And it definitely does well to know your market because often the valuer will ask you. Do you know of any comparables? So knowing your own market, knowing what deals have been done helps. But what, what I've found interesting is when the bank, if it's a traditional bank you're using, says, right, okay, well, here's our surveyor panel. 
here's the quotes we've got in, which one do you want to go with, which is certainly the route that, that we've um, experienced, yeah. is then if you know that panel and you know that you've over the years you've dealt with them, you'll know which ones understand a multi-let market better. Because although serviced offices, particularly inside the M25, is a, a, a huge, well-known business model, yes, yeah. out, out the further out you go and the more you mix that with maybe uh, split between offices, industrial, leisure, retail, all sorts of a mix in there and that blend, it some valuers totally get the um, the benefit of having multiple tenants and then others don't so you'll have some that say well <clears throat> i'm going to apply a multiple of about 10 to the net income here and others that maybe do an eight or even less sometimes so it, it is important to do a bit of research have a look at comparables that you can find out about before you even speak to the valuers but also work with valuers to see which ones actually understand that model because it's quite interesting the variances you will get on valuations. At the end of the day, when it actually comes around to selling the property, then you're going to be selling to somebody or you wish to be selling to somebody who either wants to buy that income or possibly wants to grow their own current business by acquiring other buildings. And the multiples I've seen when people are doing that are usually around about 10. Have you got any sort of more experience of that? Yeah, so one one thing I just add with that uh, panel of lenders uh, that you mentioned earlier. So with, with that, when you see the panel of lenders, I think it's always worth, like you said, uh, looking for ones you've used before. But I'd also say that actually, there's no reason why you can't phone through that list, um, and there's no reason why you can't actually ring a couple, have a chat, get an understanding of actually what they're like, um, and, and ask them a few questions. I mean. It, the difficulties is you can't really give away that you're about to use them for evaluation, but um, it's worth just having a chat with them and sort of trying to get some little nuggets of free advice from them if you can. Um, and actually, if you if you go on to, to Rick's firms, I think it's .com, uh, I want to say, um, you can normally put your postcode in and search for commercial valuers nearby anyway. Um, so it's always worth ringing through them anyway just to get a feel for, for the area. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we've seen massive variances. I mean, uh, sometimes you see valuers uh, completely disregard uh, uh, an investor's sort of rent that they've achieved uh, and actually just go off the market rent, um, which which is often lower, um, yeah. which which doesn't help at all. Um, you sometimes take uh, see some of them take percentages off for voids. Um, it's it's really difficult. I mean, a lot of the serviced offices we see are actually sort of anything like that. The multi-unit, multi-let strategies are often valued in exactly the same way as you would value an HMO, for example. Um, so we see pretty much exactly the same formula being used. Um, when it comes to actual sort of commercial assets, um, you don't often see a percentage deducted for voids or maintenance because normally they're on a, a fully repairing, insuring lease. Um, and they're normally signed up for five, ten years, whatever it may be. Um, so you often don't really see any deductions as such from there. Um, and depending on who's in there, what sort of covenant they offer. Um, I mean, if you've got Joe Blog's little corner shop in there, then it's not going to get anywhere near the same multiplier as if you had the spa or co-op or some sort of chain in there. 
Um, so yeah, I think it, it, there's a lot of things to take into account with it. Um, but actually saying that on, on the flip side, we have seen a couple recently where if there's been a hairdresser's in there, for example, or a barber's um, or a takeaway, for example, that's been there for uh, a couple of years, sort of got a good reputation locally, for example, um, we've actually seen the value would be quite sort of positive towards them. Um, and I think we might even see that a bit more coming out of COVID as well, because I think we'll see a lot of valuers looking at some of these national chains and national brands and saying, actually, what is the strength of the covenant? I mean, are, are they going to turn around in a year and have to close down X number of branches? Or um, it, it becomes to that point of, from a value perspective, what is the safer bet, putting a hairdresser or a barber in there or putting John Lewis or something like that in there? Um, I mean, probably a bad example because John Lewis probably want more space than the hairdressers, but um, you get what I mean in terms of the, the sort of brands. Um and yeah, with so many high street names closing up stores, um, I think it'd be interesting to see how the values react to that. And I think it, it's always interesting to keep an eye on Savills. Um, that they'll often release. I think it's either monthly or quarterly. Um, they release like the, their assessment of the market, um, and it's, it's quite interesting to read that. Actually, sometimes I sort of get a feel for uh, their assessment of the market and where they think things are going, and. Um, yeah, just just be interesting in general, just to see sort of how valuers shift uh, that that covenant strength as we sort of well come into the new era of the high street. Really, I I hundred percent agree with you, and it it will need to change, and it has been changing, particularly yeah. in in city. But the the multi let model throws that question out about well, if you had boots in this one, how well is their covenant these days? Yeah. as an example of a brand. And then if you had maybe 30 tenants in there, well, one of them might leave, but you've still got 29 of them paying. It, 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 at some point, um, I think as, as Multilight becomes more mainstream, it, there is going to have to be a standardizing of yeah. how these guys value these things. But that, that's the, the beauty of commercial property, of course. It's still clear as mud. There is no <laughs> yes. um, full-on full fixed standard ways of, of, of looking at these things. So, you know, at the moment, you've just got to be aware of that and try and work your best way around it. But I think that's where opportunity sits in this market because things are not clear. They're not transparent. You can't compare apples for apples sometimes. And as we've just described there, it may be nothing to do with the building. It's everything to do with the valuer. That's, of course, if you're doing refinance. At the end of the day, when it comes to selling a property, then really what the valuer thinks or anybody else thinks doesn't matter. It's what the buyer thinks. So uh, it's it, it's definitely interesting. It's definitely evolving. And all this, um, the COVID, and there's obviously a lot of talk about whether certain brands are going to survive, certain ways that we work, are they going to survive? Are we going to be working more in regional towns rather than out in, in the city centres? This is all got to play out, hasn't it? Personally, I, I think, you know, these things, it's a bit like the pendulum, isn't it? It maybe swings out, opinion swings out a little bit too far, it will start to come back. Um, I wanted to ask you just, if you're looking at doing your first commercial deal, um, what are what are some of the things that, maybe you should consider to help make that a little bit easier to do. And, and an example that springs to my mind would be perhaps if you have your own business, you could move that in as a tenant to a certain 
part of the building. What are lenders going to be looking for and how can you position yourself to make it more attractive to lenders? Yeah, so one of the, uh, I suppose, again, moving into the this new era of commercial that we're, we're coming into, I think we'll see a lot of changes around experience. Um, traditionally, experience has always been required. Either you need to have held uh, a couple of commercial units previously or a couple of residential units. Um, but actually, I think we'll see that start to wane off a bit as, as actually, uh, yeah, commercial becomes sort of more popular for the smaller uh, investor or developer. Um, and in terms of, I, I suppose, in order to make it easy, I mean, we've, we've got a guy at the minute buying a pub uh, to convert into offices. Um, it's going to be one of his, his first projects. Um, it, it's not a particularly big project, um, but there's still an element of really experience required. Um, but by getting a sort of strong team around him, we've been able to sort of get the development finance fairly, fairly easily. Um, but actually the plan for the refinance is actually to have one of the offices occupied by his construction business. Um, and then they'll pay market rent. There's already a tenant in there at that point. So at the point you go to take it for refinance, it, it's sort of from a bank's perspective, when they're looking at it, it it's a more appealing deal because you're not taking them vacant commercial, which at the minute, I mean, to, to take a lender vacant commercial, you, you may as well just not bother. Um, you just haven't got a hope um, because their, their worry is about trying to fill commercial at the minute. Um, now, again, that, that will probably change in the next few months. Um, again, as, as some of that confidence comes back that, that commercial is, is getting back to where it was. Um, but yeah, by putting them in there, you've, you've got a rent coming in, you've got a tenant in there already. It becomes a much more appealing deal to have a look at. Um, and I think in terms of, let's say, if you weren't going to put uh, a, a company in there or sort of occupy yourself, then I mean, as long as you've got a bit of experience in terms of residential, um, I think if you're completely cold to it, you, you've had absolutely no experience of of holding residential, you've had absolutely no experience of holding commercial, you, you don't own your own property at all, um, then that is going to be a more difficult sell. Um, but there are products that you can use as a stepping stone. I mean, for example, you could go onto a bridge, um, hold it for 12 months, rent it, use that rent to pay the bridge. You've then got 12 months worth of, of letting experience. Um, there are also sort of mid-level bridges, which are sort of almost a hybrid uh, between a bridge and a term facility, uh, which will allow you to hold it for probably two or three years at a slightly lower interest rate. Um, they're a rarer product to get hold of, um, but it's still there nonetheless. Um, so the, there are ways around it. I mean, the, the bridging route, I find, is probably one of the easiest, um, albeit it's not the cheapest, um, but it's one of the easiest if you're completely fresh to property investing or, or property letting or anything like that. Um, that's... that's- that's interesting. So from my perspective, um, we, we just back to your point there about vacant space. So on occasion, we have bought completely vacant space with traditional bank funding from com- in commercial. Um, but the three things that we always talk about with the bank are loan to value, um, about experience, which you've, you've already mentioned. And the third thing they always talk to us about is serviceability. So if you... If you have a portfolio, 
particularly portfolio of commercial and you're adding in another building and there's no there's no occupancy it's all about how can you service that debt can you service it through your existing portfolio and if you can then and in our experience more the more traditional guys will lend on it but my question to you is with bridging finance what what are their key criteria they're actually looking at if you're going to maybe take them potentially a vacant building that you might put yourself in okay and there's some income what are the other things they would look at or are they much more open than the traditional lenders yeah i mean definitely your loan to value and your serviceability is going to come into it um, I mean, if you've got good income coming in from a completely separate source, um, and it's quite a solid source, then actually that can be quite favourable because at least they know. Let's say there's there's nobody in there, and there sort of isn't going to be in anyone in there for a month or two. Then uh, actually, you can still pick up the payments and it not be too detrimental. Um, I think that the biggest thing out of all of it is affordability because at the end of the day, the banks don't want to be taking the property back. So if they're in a situation where they've gone through the affordability, the serviceability, et cetera, and they've said, yeah, it'll be fine, don't worry. And then all of a sudden, a couple of months later, you can't pay the payments and they've got to take it back. It's it's an administrative nightmare for that. Yeah. Um, so that, that's the main thing, is, is making sure that they're not going to have to come and take it back off you. Um, the other thing, actually, I find that, that helps quite a bit is if you can get either a, a commercial letting agent um, or potentially even the valuer when they go out to give some sort of uh, synopsis of, of actually this is the demand in the area, this is what else has gone on the market, this is how long it took to let... Um, that can be really, really powerful because actually if, if you've got a commercial letting agent going, yeah, we've had 27 service offices come onto the market in the last three months, for example, uh, and actually all of them let within two or three weeks of going on the market, then when you're going to the bank, you say, well, look, this is what's happening in the area. Um, and from their underwriter's point of view, they look at that and go, okay, well, in, in theory, we're not going to have big void periods. And obviously they'll compare the property and say, okay, well, yeah, that, that block of service offices looks very similar to this block of service offices, yet the rental, sort of what they're charging is very similar. So in theory, the occupying of that property should be fairly similar as well. Um, so in terms of that, they'll always look at that as well in terms of demand. Because again, what they don't want is, is void periods. That's just, it, it doesn't help anybody. Um, so what you're looking for is those comparables again, and that's your homework. If you can get that, that's really going to help with these guys. Yeah, exactly. And that's what it always comes back to is, is actually that bit of groundwork uh, that takes place before you sort of get started of what are the comparables nearby. I mean, again, it's it's not as easy to do, but there's no reason why you couldn't set up some sort of advert and, and actually get an idea of what demand in the area is like. Um, yeah. And again, it doesn't hurt to get pre-lets in place either. Um, yeah, we've we've done both of those. Both yeah. of those are, are, are really useful. Very helpful to work out what's going on. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's what a lot of people do on HMOs, for example. Um, yeah. And it, when you're trying to sort of get a gauge for demand in the area for an HMO room, for example. So it shouldn't be any different for a, a service office or uh, a small shop unit or something like that. Um, I mean, if you're looking at acquiring a, a big 
unit uh, with some serious square footage, then I think getting a proper commercial agent on board, uh, getting someone who can sort of deal with actually getting you a proper tenant in. I mean, if you there's agents that you can go to who put people like Nando's and all those sort of brands in place um, and often sort of find premises for these companies. Um, so again, if you can get someone like that on board and you can show the lender actually, yet yeah, we've got whoever on board for 10 years, that they'd be mad not to lend. Um, especially if you've got like a, a big high street restaurant or something like that who've shown that they've got a strong uh, sort of background. Um, there's no risk of sort of anything happening to them. Um, then yeah, it's, it's normally fairly easy uh, to sort of persuade a lender in that scenario. So basically, find you know if you can get an option on a building so that you can then go out find find a tenant, or indeed, of course, find the tenant first, then go and find them the building. Because a lot of these nationals, and I don't know what it's like now post COVID, but certainly they would have their their search criteria, you could find it on the internet or you could find it through certain contacts, what these organisations are looking for, and then you just need to go out and find it, try and secure it on an option and then approach them. And that certainly helps us funding, as you say. It, it's a way of adding can, value as well. Of course, yeah, of course, absolutely. So, and and to be fair, that's, that's the real thing here. Yes, cash flow is what you want long-term if you're investing, but cash flow that you've bought in at a low value, then you've added your value. Now your cash flow is related to that, that new valuation. It, interestingly, with um, the loan to values that we spoke about earlier on, I just want to just touch on that because there is a question I get asked quite a lot. Um, you mentioned that 70% on bridge, that that's really interesting. And then your opinion on sort of more commercial mortgage, the sort of exit end, is that still around about 70%? Is that what you're experiencing? At the minute, I'd say we're, yes, 70% is probably the average because I was going to say actually it's sitting anywhere between 65 and 75. Um, so, yes, yeah, 70% sits slap bang in yeah. the middle of that. And, that. and, of course, that's affected by a few of the things we've talked about, isn't it? Whether it's, um, whether it's fully let, what stage the building's at, all that sort of stuff. And yeah. what about the development in the middle? What, what sort of, how does that affect it by loan to value or, or um, potential income? What, what's, how does that work? Yeah, so with the, the development finance, I mean, they, they literally look at it in exactly the same way as they would a residential development. Um, the, the emphasis on the valuation will just be a bit more around, actually, is what's the valuation with vacant possession? What's the valuation uh, if it was fully tenanted? Uh, and it's then up to the lender to decide if they want to go off vacant possession or if they want to go off uh, sort of the market value fully let. So yeah. th- they'll often lend. I mean, it, it varies massively, but um, I mean, take one that we've we've done recently. I mean, that was at seventy percent of the purchase, hundred percent of the refurb cost, um, and that that's about average at the minute. I mean, albeit some are some are a little less. Um, we we haven't had any that are higher than that. And is that the same company doing the, doing the lending, both the bridge and the development, or are they tending to use two different? Uh, again, it, it varies. I mean, some some do both products. Some sort of have to split it up, and we, we'd have to go to two separate lenders. But uh, we tend to try and keep it with the same lender because if you're going for a bridge and then that bridge into development finance, um, you, you tend to try and avoid going to too many lenders. Um, so if we if we can use a lender that can do all of it in in house, it saves. 
a bit on legal fees. It saves faffing about with too many valuations. It saves, uh, in some instances, uh, fresh arrangement fees. Um, so it's, yeah. it's quite handy trying to keep it so that the, the acquisition finance and the development finance uh, are done separately. And in some cases, people use development finance as the acquisition finance. Um yeah. Because as part of the development finance, if they're giving you 70% towards purchase, then it may be that you don't need that bridge. Um, the only time people tend to really use that bridge to then refinance is if there's a planning requirement that they can't do on an option um, or possibly purchasing at auction. And uh, I mean, if it's a substantial development, um, 28 days wouldn't be, be long enough to get uh, the valuation, the quantity surveyor, the monitoring surveyor, the asset manager, all of those different professionals in uh, actually assessing the project. Um, so sometimes if it's a particularly sizable development, they might pop it onto a bridge first, uh, actually get it under their belt and then sort of get all the professionals in for the development finance um, and just try and get off the bridge as quickly as possible. Um, yeah, and of course, security's in there as well, isn't it? About which, you know, who, who's, who's um, ultimately the primary um, lender here? Because if you're doing a mix of bridge from one and development from another, there's going to be a hierarchy there, isn't there? Um, I mean, we tend to find a, a bit there as far as I'm aware. The only sort of second charge development finance is, is mezzanine finance, which normally sits on top of uh, a first charge development loan. So we tend to find that actually we, we don't put a development loan on top of uh, a bridge. They, they normally come as one package. So we, we've never yeah. really had that issue massively. Um, I mean, we do, we do get a hierarchy. If, if again, if it's a substantial development, um, we brought the development finance in, and then we've got to bring Mez in on top. That that always presents its own issues because the development lender solicitor doesn't want to work with the mezzanine lender solicitor, and they're trying to sort out deeds of priority and uh, deed of subordination or order, whatever they want to put in place at that point. Um, and it, it always ends up in uh, yeah, just a bit of a a war of words between solicitors trying to decide who, <laughs> who gets what in the relationship. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah, always good fun. But um, yeah, we always develop and find out. So the bridge will always take first charge unless you're going specifically for second charge bridging. Um, the development loan will always take first charge and then mezzanine will take second charge. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I had one other question that I just wanted to, ask you which was more on sectorial and regional differences so we talk about a mixed development or we've been speaking about mixed developments but there are some who will just be doing retail there's some that are doing perhaps industrial units or spaces different classifications has that really had any effect on the type of finance you're looking at and is also are there any regional differences um or actually, at the end of the day, they're all looked at case by case? Um, I would say in terms of regions, I've, I've not really seen any differences unless you're either trying to buy in the Highlands in Scotland or um, Norfolk in, in England or uh, some hills somewhere in Wales. Um, <laughs> you can tell my Welsh geography is not great. <laughs> Um, well, I've, got nothing, I've got nothing wrong with Norfolk or Wales, but but the Highlands for sure. Yeah, there's good up in the Highlands. <laughs> so in terms of that, I mean that they're the only sort of regional differences. If it's if it's an area where the commercial demand isn't particularly high, um, but to be fair, that I mean that could be anywhere. I mean there's there's places in London where 
commercial demand isn't going to be particularly high. Um, so, it's, I mean, it all just comes down to the valuer's comments on that as to whether he deems that there's a, a market for that property. Yeah. Um, in terms of retail, haven't really seen any any massive changes. Again, it, it comes down to valuer's comments um, in terms of how they believe it's going to perform, uh, whether they think there's any risks or anything like that. Um, industrial is a little bit different because industrial encompasses uh, a lot of different construction methods. Um, so with industrial, you could have a brick built building of some description, um, some sort of brick built warehouse, for example. Um, but you could also have a tin shed, um, and they both fall under the same sort of planning class. Um, with the sort of metal fabrication buildings, they're not impossible to mortgage. Um, it's just they, they bring with them their own challenges. Um, but actually, a lot of the metal fabrication warehouses that they bring out now are, are probably stronger than most houses, to be fair. Some um, of the sandwich panels are, are very good, but uh, yeah. but that's often why you'll see an industrial unit with brick up to a certain height, and then yes, beyond yeah. that, they go to the metal just to perhaps help with that. Yeah, exactly that. And we, we actually had a, a gentleman that owns uh, an industrial estate that's made up of uh, sort of brick up to probably about a third uh, height of the building, and then the rest was was metal fabrication. Um, and yeah, they were absolutely fine. Um, but it's because when actually you sort of look inside them, they're, they're just built to such a high standard that actually, mm-hmm. yeah, it, they'll out-survive most houses. Um, yeah. So yeah, it just just depends on sort of the warranties that they come in, much like with a house. Um, it, it very much just depends on what warranties they've got, etc. cetera. Um, but yeah, we've not seen any massive differences across either sectors or, or regions, really. Um, That's interesting. I'd say probably one of the one of the hardest at the minute is is just vacant commercial buildings, um, but that's for the reasons that we touched on earlier. Just yeah, just the market as it so is. The, yeah, the the one the the most recent acquisition we made fifty percent of it was vacant and fifty was let, and and I think because of the price we bought it at and the occupancy covenant of the the bit that is let um, gave us a pretty good position with the bank in the end we did private finance with it but it, but it was one that the bank were willing willing to do and the previous one was a single occupant um, let building and some storage units but we, we managed to get pretty good traditional finance on that I think it was partly because of the strength of the income and the length of the lease but also from the container storage point of view it, it kind of sat within um, our current portfolio and we could work it and make some cost savings on, on what was going on in the f- with the previous owner. They, they, it was perhaps a little bit more expensive to run, but we could just fit it in with our, our existing operation. But the point I'm trying to make anyway is that even during f- late February, we did one deal and the other one we did right in the middle of COVID. Um, and I, it it is interesting that in amongst all the chat and one could argue panic and all the rest of it, people are just getting on with it. It's still possible to do those deals. And as you say, there's so much going on in the market. It's, it, each time I talk to you, it's it's like you're pausing to take breath <laughs> because there's so much going on, which is great to hear. Yeah. Is there anything else you would um, suggest to somebody who was maybe getting started in commercial and looking at finance 
even if it was more of a traditional vanilla product where they're looking at maybe trying to buy something that's leased or something that's partially leased and they're thinking about doing um, moving themselves in, maybe doing a small bit of development. Is there anything that you've seen or anything you would think that would be worthwhile adding to what we've discussed? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've probably covered most stuff, but I think probably one of the, the last parting thoughts um, is, is just to take incremental steps. Um, because of the, you and I were speaking about this earlier on today, um, but it's incredible the number of people that, uh, okay, great, they, they want to jump into the industry and they want to jump in with both feet. Um, but the issue is, is that they'll often jump in and try and take on too much too quickly. Um, and I think it, it's just important to remember, especially if you're new to it, um, just to take small incremental steps and build yourself up over time. Because it, actually, by doing that, you make yourself more appealing to lenders. Um, actually, you, you have a stronger business because of it, because you can build gradually and, and, and not take too much on in one go. Um, but it, it's that bit of becoming more appealing to a lender, um, I think, which is the important bit. Um, and I think by taking those small incremental steps and building relationships uh, with the right people is where I think you'll be most successful for sure. That's, that's brilliant. And, and we didn't prep that at all. And that's exactly <laughs> the sort of things I say. Start small, learn your mistakes in a cheap way, build up your knowledge, get in the swim. It, it's so important. And, and you can conquer the mountain later. Just get started. Yeah. <laughs> it's the important thing. Okay, Michael, I think we better wrap things up. We're, we're getting um, near to the hour mark, so let's just um, finish off with a couple of things. First thing is, how do people find you? Um, you've um, put a lot of time in here. I really appreciate your your input, and I'm sure there'll be some people listening to this that would like to talk to you about some deals. So can you maybe just tell us some places that people can find you? I can put these in the show notes, of course. Yes. But uh, where is best to look out for you? So there's a few different places, uh, either any social media platform um so on facebook instagram twitter linkedin um i'm often chucking content out left right and center um or probably more importantly is jump onto the website which is the property finance collective.co.uk um and that will take you through to our website and then you can contact us through there and fill in inquiry forms and listen to the podcast and watch videos and read the blog and all sorts of uh funky things which we're trying to do Fantastic. That's that's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael, and, and giving us your your experiences. I'm sure there's other episodes in the future we may delve into some of those topics because we just went over fairly briefly over a few things there that could be a podcast in themselves. Well, yes, you have a podcast series about this, so <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah, which is very aptly named the Property Finance Podcast. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay, so thank you for that. And anyone that. Um, would like to know more about ourselves you'll find us on commercialpropertyinvestor.co.uk you'll find some videos information blogs and our podcast there as well so thank you very much for joining us michael thank you to everybody that's been giving us reviews and for your feedback we really appreciate it and we look forward to speaking to you all next week 